This is your city. This is your city wants to know. We want to know the background, the heartbeat of what makes up our beautiful cities. We dig into the backstories from the struggles to the successes of our local entrepreneurs, small business owners, artists, not-for-profit organizations, and the many, many people who make up the intricate tapestry of our communities. Real people, real stories, by you and for you. But wait, that's not it. Welcome to episode two with Jeffrey Deskovic. If you did not hear episode one, I encourage you to do so. You will be hooked from the first moment. Jeffrey was convicted of rape and murdering his fellow classmate, and he spent 16 years in prison and was later exonerated through DNA. Now, let's get to it and hear the exoneration, what he's been doing since his release, and where he is now. Part two with Jeffrey Deskovic. Talked about where you put your mind, how you made it through. Let's go back to the time, Jeffrey, where things started to look up. How? Where did you write your letter? Who received it? What did they do? How did they get back to you to give you some more hope? Sure. Uh, I, I would like to just briefly outline the seven appeals for a second and then get yes. to that question. Would that be okay? Uh, all right, absolutely. sure. All right, sure. So while all that was going on, you know, and tons of other stuff in the prison, the food being, you know, terrible, burned, not fully cooked, and other stuff like that. Uh, I'm just going to skip over that. Uh, the uh, so I went to the uh, appellate division, the first court. My issues on appeal were that my that my the police had violated my rights by the way in which they uh, interrogated me. Uh, the issue of the judge repeatedly allowing this polygraphist to tell the jury that I failed the polygraph, the missing the evidence that was thrown out, uh, certainly the uh, my being innocent based on the DNA, you know, which the lawyer argued there was legally insufficient evidence to find me guilty, that the prosecution hadn't proven me guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, and that the verdict was against the weight of the evidence. Those three separate and distinct though interrelated issues. In, in total, 10 issues of law were raised. I had a totally different attorney, different type of public defender. She did a bang up job. 10 issues were raised, including the judge being biased against me. Right, right. And despite that, the, the, court, the court ruled that I was free to come and go as I wanted. And therefore they wrote that I was not in custody and they found the statements to be voluntary. They wrote that there was overwhelming evidence of guilt, which I still don't quite understand because the DNA didn't match me. And then they knocked out all the rest of my issues in one sentence by writing that they've looked at the rest of my issues and found them either to be without merit or else not preserved for review. Right. And they ruled against me five nothing. And at that point, it, it all went downhill from there. The re-argument motion was denied in one word denied. The highest court in New York, the New York Court of Appeals, um, it's a two-step process. You have to ask for permission first, that's the first step, and to appeal to them. And only if they agree will you then be able to fully argue your issues and get a decision based on the issues you're raising. So the New York Court of Appeals declined to give me permission to appeal to them. They, they, they wrote that there was no merit in law to justify reviewing my case. And so they were con they were declining to review it, which again, all those issues of law, certainly the evidence and the polygraph and the Fifth Amendment, there were plenty of issues of law there. Um, 
I lost in federal court because the, you fashion your seatbelt on, on this one. I lost in federal court because the court clerk gave my lawyer the wrong information pertaining to the filing procedure, which resulted in my petition arriving four days too late, which the then the district attorney at that time, Janine Pirro, who does a lot of commentary on television now, uh, her office took the position that uh, those four days were somehow prejudicial to the people and therefore they urged the court to simply rule that I was late and dismiss my case that way, which is what happened. So I challenged that ruling at the federal court of appeals where, uh, uh, you know, where my lawyer argued that this was not a delay caused by me and my attorney, but by the misinformation by the court clerk. Uh, I don't think any of us need a law degree or to be a lawyer to know that that's a good argument. Uh, that that uh, upholding that a ruling like that would cause a miscarriage of justice to continue, which kind of in a way backdoors the DNA evidence not matching me. And then uh, and then she also argued that uh, overturning the procedural ruling would open the door to more sophisticated DNA testing to happen. And uh, once again, the DA opposed. And uh, again, the court, which at that point was made up of uh, uh, Judge Rosemary Pooler and future U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, they upheld that lower court ruling. They declined the re-argument motion. Uh, and then the U.S. Supreme Court declined to give me permission to appeal to them. So that was the end of the appeals. I wrote letters for four years looking for an investigator and attorney to uh, take my case pro bono to find some new evidence. We talked about that last episode. And then I made an appearance at the parole board where it, in large part, because I maintained my innocence rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility, they uh, rejected me for parole, which resulted in my juvenile uh, year of imprisonment. So let's get to where things start to turn, turn around, right? Which is how we got down this branch of conversation. So one of those letters that I wrote uh, was in care of a book publishing company. I wrote uh, an author, uh, Tecla Miller, who had published a book on her memoirs uh, called The Warden War Pink, which was about when she served as a warden of a men's maximum security prison. Okay, cool. Uh, so that that so that was one chapter in this. I went to the, I, at at the end. I was I was coming up short on ideas on whom next to write what. So I started going to the general library, not for books to read, but also uh, books that would have contact information. Who was the next person I could write to? And so one of those books that kind of called to me when I went up there on one of those trips to the library was called Chicken Soup for the Prisoner's Soul. And when I saw it, I looked at the back of the book and I flipped through it and I saw that there was contact info for about half of the authors. So it contained like one chapter from many different books. Right. So when I saw that, I decided to borrow the book for that purpose. And uh, that was where I came across that one chapter from uh, Tecla Miller's book. So I wrote, I wrote her in care of that publishing company reasoning, well, it's pretty likely that in her walk of life, she knows someone that could help me or that she might come across somebody. But someone at the publishing company instead uh, sent the letter to an investigator named Claudia Whitman. She wrote me back right away. And when I, I, when I showed her the DNA not matching me, she was instantly convinced of my innocence because she understood DNA and 
she never before had heard of a case where somebody had, had been excluded by the DNA, but had been convicted. So uh, that was really where things started to look up a little bit. Uh, she uh, explained that she was too far away to directly work on my case, but she was willing to help me network. Mm -hmm. So I accepted what she was willing to do. And uh, one of her ideas in the course of a year proved to be the winning one. So she suggested that I write the Innocence Project again, a nonprofit organization in Manhattan that worked to free wrongfully convicted prisoners where uh, DNA testing could demonstrate innocence in which there had been no prior testing. So I wrote them before uh, because the DNA had been tested, it wouldn't have been something new. And so that was why they had wound up rejecting my case. Right. Uh, but fast forwarding, Claudia told me, well, the DNA data bank has been created. And, uh, you know, therefore the prior denial was irrelevant. And I knew it had been created, uh, created because I had been keeping up with DNA and actually wrote the Westchester DA's office asking for further testing also, which that was uh, declined also. Mm -hmm. uh, but I wrote them and then she, uh, she, I filled out that questionnaire, then I forgot about it. Uh, I looked for other ways to get representation, none of which worked. Now she, on her end of it, she lobbied them to take my case. She got other people to lobby them to take my case. Then I also got lucky that uh, Maggie Taylor, who, an attorney now who then was the intake worker at the Innocence Project, she presented my case. She represented the case to the Innocence Project uh, she presented a total of three times because the lawyers, again, did not want to take it because I had been excluded uh, by, by the DNA. But she got them to take it, the third the third uh, presentation. So getting the representation was the key. Second key was Piero left office and her successor was willing to let me get the testing. Uh, that was uh, Janet Fury. And the third thing was got, we got lucky that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the data bank, and so it matched him. And his DNA was only there because left free while I was doing time for his crime, he killed his second victim three and a half years later after killing the victim in my case. Oh my gosh. So confronted with that, he, he, he confessed. So the, the, my, my conviction was overturned. I was released on September 22nd, 2006. Uh, returned back to court on November 2nd, 2006, at which point all the charges against me were dismissed on actual innocence grounds, and he was subsequently uh, arrested and convicted of, for the crime. Oh my gosh, there's so much to take in right there with what you just said. Oh my gosh. So <laughs> I'm very intrigued on how you went to the library and started messaging, writing, reaching out yes. to people who really weren't yes. in, you know, you weren't, they weren't lawyers, they weren't right. like, People to weren't investigators, were not people in the legal field at all. No, because I because it was not enough people like that to write. I mean, if I could, in my own head, if I could come up with a line of reasoning, something that somebody could do, which would set in motion a chain of events that ultimately culminated into my getting the representation I needed, then I, I took the chance by writing the letter. That's amazing because not not many people would come up with that. Okay, I, I have nobody else in the legal field to do. Let me reach out to an author. Let me reach out to somebody who, who has a chapter in a book. And that's right. incredible that you you had the foresight to do that. And then it just kind of, it just took its own its own pace there. And it, it happened. And this woman went for you a few times, went to bat for you. And then, of course, your evidence and your education, because you educated yourself while you were in there. Right. What I'm really fascinated about is when they finally said, okay, let's do another DNA test. What were you, when they said, okay, 
what were you feeling? Was it elation? Was it hope? Was it just, I'm just going to take it day by day and not allow myself to get excited? Yes. What, what yes. The latter day to day, I'm not going to allow myself to get excited. So first off, even when I got the letter saying that they accepted my case, by that point, I was still too jaded and hurt to even, you know, okay. hope. So right. I actually, I took the letter with me. I snuck it out to the yard and I met up with Frank Sterling. Remember that that was recalling that Frank was the other innocent prisoner there that would ultimately be exonerated. And the rep, the Innocence Project, I, I knew had already accepted his case. So I showed him the letter and I said, Frank, look, what is it that they're saying here? Are they, are they telling me they've taken my case or are they just telling me that they're now going to review it and determine if they're going to take it? Right. You know, and so he, he, uh, I'll digress for half a second. And so he, uh, he, so he turns at me, he gets this uh, crap eating grin on his face. He extends his hand to me, you know, and he with a big old smile, like I said, and he shakes my hand and says, Oh, they've, they've agreed to take your case. So that was the backstory. Uh, that was the backstory on, on that. So, so I felt you, a little bit of hope, but in general, I was afraid to hope much for anything. Like I had to reel that back in. Yeah. But did you guys, when Frank was like, and he shook your hand, like, were you guys elated together and like, you just embraced and you're yes. like, okay, this is possible. Not only that. Yes. hundred percent that, but not only that, but we also made a pledge to each other that whoever made it out first was going to try to help the other person, even if it was just on the level of just, you know, trying to raise awareness about their case. Right. And by the way, as we'll get to later, uh, I, uh, I, upheld, I wound up out first. I never thought I would because he had gotten the representation first. But when I was released, I'm at my press conference and I started talking about his case <laughs> in the middle of that. Yes. And so when I eventually, uh, and so when, uh, and so when Frank was eventually exonerated a few years after me, and by the way, we, we, we stayed in touch for a couple of years, um, while I was out and he was in, mm -hmm. uh, the local Westchester County paper, the reporter remembered that. And he wrote like a local article about Frank's case, like five hours north, but he had that local angle to it. And he entitled the article, I, I Believed in His Innocence. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. So you get this, he, Frank's telling you that means they're taking your case. You're excited. What happens next? All right. So uh, I'm waiting after that. I'm in like a kind of a hold pattern. I'm just waiting for them to do whatever the process is something. on their end. Right. Something. Right. Periodically, I would I would write letters and periodically I would. And I, and I remember being preoccupied with making sure they understood that the DNA didn't match me. You know, I was always afraid of one misunderstanding or another. So mm -hmm. I was staying on top of them that way. Periodically, I would speak to them on the phone. And then finally, uh, they, they sent me a, you know, a, a copy of the a draft of uh, the motion, but we reached the loggerheads, you know, we, you know, they, they said that, well, we, we've accepted the DNA portion of your case. And so having lost in federal court in the way I've just described, right. you know, uh, you know, I, I was leery about that because uh, first of all, the DNA, going the DNA data bank route was a long shot. Mm. And I already had experience with losing on technicalities and I, I had never filed a 
had a post-conviction motion filed on my behalf. So I didn't want to burn my last remedy on a long shot. And then when I come back and file another one on these other issues, then they tell me no, because you could have raised it before, but didn't. So I nearly did not accept their representation. Uh, And so, but the lawyer there came up with this uh, creative way around that. And her idea was, well, let us just draft everything anyway. We're not going to submit it. Uh, We're going to get Barry Sheck to bring it to the Westchester DA to uh, see if she'll allow you to get the testing uh, without you having to litigate uh, over it. And so let's see what happens with that first. So that was how that was how that was uh, that was how that was resolved. So ultimately, fast forwarding a little bit, because I know you're going to really appreciate uh, this last part of it. And I got the news. So well, let me just say one other thing, right? The backstory on why I even got the testing, as I understood it. So so Piro was in the middle of running for New York State Attorney General. And her and her successor, uh, DeFiore, they couldn't stand each other. Oh. And so since so she was running in the middle of attorney general, I think that was part of the reason why she allowed me to get the testing, hoping that I'd be excluded just to damage her, uh, her run for that higher office. Okay. So I think that was part of the, back- but look, whatever, I'll take it. However I can get it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> works. If that's your line of reasoning work works for me. Yeah. <laughs> so um, anyway, um, so the lawyer, my, my attorney, Nina Morrison, comes up to see me. I had just been moved to Sing Sing. I'd been there for maybe like 28 days. That's in Westchester County. Uh, so I left Elmira, went to Sing Sing, and she came up to see me on a surprise visit. I didn't, I didn't know who, who was even there coming to see me. And uh, when I, we speak, she introduces herself uh, uh, you know, as my attorney. Yeah. And then she says to me, uh, you know, the, the items have been tested and, and like, I'm on, like, I'm on the alert. Once she mentioned she was my lawyer, like I'm on red alert for anything out of the ordinary because right. I've like lost on these obscure and crazy grounds before multiple times. Yeah. So yeah. she says the items have been tested. And I said, what, what are you talking about? They're not supposed to be tested for another month. And she says, no, the DA pulled some strings. They've been tested. And, uh, the results match somebody else and you're going home tomorrow. And I said, no, I'm not. And we went back and forth like in, uh, three times. And the end result is she had to like sit there and I like, hold my hand for the next three, three and a half hours. I had this paralysis and my head was spinning and all these different thoughts were going through my head. And, you know, one thought had nothing to do with the next. And I was just sitting there uh, repeating all this random stuff. She's just like holding my hand and just listening, not replying. And every now and then she'd cut in and say, are you ready to talk about tomorrow? I'm like, no, no, no. Look, no. Keep that away from me. We're not talking about tomorrow. Not entertaining that. I'm not getting my hope up. I'm not going home. No, we're not. Yeah. No, it's not. No. And and finally, what made it real was you said, look, it's almost time for the visit visiting to be uh, to be over. Uh, I need to get your shoe size. I need to get the size for your, your suit because it has to be purchased. And there's a ton of work to do uh, between now and tomorrow with respect to the media. And oh. and uh, that really is what made it real. And so I felt better for about five minutes. And, <laughs> and then a different fear crossed my mind. 
uh, which was that I thought that something was going to happen between that day and the next, and they were going to change their mind, and I was going to still be stuck in there. I can't imagine. Did you sleep at all that night? No, I did not. I think I slept for like an hour. So there was a prisoner there that I knew from Elmira uh, that I used to play basketball with there. So he was at this facility and we were neighbors. And so uh, uh, he, so we're, our cell, we can't, so his cell's right next to mine. He stood up with me. He agreed to stay up with me and we would hold like a mirror. We'd take turns holding a mirror with outside of the cell bar so that we could have the, the visual. Oh my gosh. And did you, what happens in a, in a thing like this? Okay, you're in a maximum, you're in, prison with yeah, all maximum security men, prison, yeah. mm -hmm. and you find out you're going home you know yeah. again with my movies i'm so sorry but that's the only thing i can go by right like, right right did other prisoners get angry at you did they find out did you tell were you excited and boasting maybe like i don't right. know i'm just trying to i'm in that i'm in that moment with you yeah right i now. see that i see that yeah <laughs> I, I can see that. Yeah. So as I walked back from my, you know, the visit to my cell, I, and I, there was only a few people there that I knew, because remember, I was only there for 28 days. This was right. not Elmira where I spent the 13 and a half of the 16 years at. But to the extent that I did see people there, you know, I would, I, you know, I shook hands with people and just say, hey, I'm going home tomorrow. You know, and I did. Uh, I, and I went to recreation that night. It was kind of a it was kind of a weird moment because so the Innocence Project left somebody like uh, an intern that was in law school, they left somebody in their office so that I could call, collect, and have somebody to talk to that night. But I'm on the phone with this stranger. I'm in the prison yard. We're talking about going home tomorrow and, and, and you know, how different that's going to be. But meanwhile, I'm still, all I'm seeing is like the fence, the barbed wire, the wall, you know, yeah. the guards, the other prisoners in their uniform. So it, it just did, you know, everything about my senses said nothing at all about you know, freedom and going home tomorrow. Right. Uh, but, but uh, you know, once I uh, got off the phone, you know, I did walk around the yard a little bit and I, I, I met up with a few people that I knew and, you know, just, just told them that I was, uh, you know, it was going, it was going home tomorrow, but I don't, I don't think they really fully understood. <laughs> did, did anybody go, oh, well, I guess you were only there for 28 days, so it's different, but, you know, like, oh, you son of a bee, you are innocent. Like, did, any of that ever come up with any of your your cellmates? Because I'm sure throughout the years you were like, no, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm, I didn't do this. And then yeah, I did. I yeah, did yeah, say everybody's... that. Well, I did say that a few times throughout the years. I mean, I didn't in general because you know I would I did not want to uh, draw attention to myself because remember right. I was there for the rape with the murder and I didn't you know right. want that right. But that that having been said, within a limited context, I did I did do I did uh, I did proclaim my innocence to people yeah sure. uh, but there was really nobody there was really nobody oh, except the one person who stood up the person who stood up with me I had been telling him you know previously you know right. that he was one of those few people that I had been telling you know that hey I'm innocent and uh, you know he uh, he couldn't believe it actually he couldn't believe it that's amazing and so were you fearful also not just because you didn't want to get your hopes up but were you fearful of what it would be like because you know, 16 years is a long time. I know some people are 40, 50, but technology changes, everything changes. So was there a bit of fear in, in coming out as in, what am I going to do with society? 
No, that only that only I only became aware of that once I was actually released. Oh, right. And that that's when all those complications came up. I mean, technology had passed me by, so it did that did feel like I was in a parallel world that I didn't belong in. I mean, the GPS, cell phones, internet hadn't been created. Culture was totally different. Uh, Cities and neighborhoods uh, looked different and different people lived there. So that was all, that was all different as well. Um, There was um, psychological after effects is common, PTSD, panic and attacks, anxiety, feeling having been frozen in time, feeling of processing things, slower speed, uh, there was uh, the uh, stigma of having been in prison for 16 years, uh, wrongfully, but still there for 16 years. So, you know, how much of that rubbed off on you? Is it you know, safe to be alone someplace with you? So all of those were amongst the challenges that I faced. Amazing. And this person that was convicted who actually mm-hmm. was crime. matched, right? Yeah. He was already in prison for yes. a second murder, right? That's right. Yes, okay. that's right. So you got exonerated. Was there a ceremony of where they're asking for your forgiveness or apologizing to you. Did you get, did you get that? Did you get what you needed? As best they short, can. Short, short, well, short, short answer is no. I mean, I got an apology from the district attorney, but she was not the one who presided over the wrongful conviction. It was, she was not Piro who fought all those appeals. Right. Uh, it, it, it had an apology from the prosecutor in the courtroom, but that was not the one who had convicted me. The judge, apologize, but that was not the one who presided over that kangaroo court. So none of the people that were involved ever, ever apologized to me. They really, there was a big press conference when I was uh, released and and everything I ever wanted to say for 16 years, but never had anybody to, you know, get anyone to hear it all came out. And so I held everybody there for, you know, uh, maybe, uh, maybe two two to two and a half hours. So there was the (laughs) Yeah, right. And uh, it was my moment. I didn't know when I was going to be in front of the cameras again. So I wasn't wasting it. Uh, <laughs> and then and then it, we did have a celebratory uh, luncheon afterwards. Was your mother, is your mother still alive? She is. And was she there? She was. Oh, well, that's, was that good for you? I'm imagining it was. Yes, that was. Yes, it was. And then you had this all happen. Okay. All right. Then another day happens. Another day happens then life starts to go on. That must have been diff- extremely difficult. Yes. But then again, you had and continue to have this mindset of the next foot and stunt in front of the other. So although life started to happen, you know, how do I get a job, right? Who's going to hire a prisoner? Who, you know, am I going to get a wife or a girlfriend or, or not, right? Like life goes on now, you know, maybe a week, a mm-hmm. month, two months, what happens next with Jeffrey? Yeah, so, well, you're right. It was that juxtaposition. On one hand, there's all these challenges, which I'm going to detail now, but on the other, but on, but on the other, I do have this mindset of moving, of, of, of moving on. So I had that working for me. So suddenly I was in a world I was unfamiliar with. Uh, I mentioned the technological, the cultural, things yeah. looking different, psychological, yeah. the stigmatic. Uh, I was always passed over for gainful employment. Um, you know, uh, everybody seemed to want somebody with job experience and they could hit the ground running rather than being patient for some on the job training. So that was uh, difficult. I, I did become a, a weekly columnist, uh, but they, it was only a weekly newspaper. So they, you know, I was making money that way, but they only wanted one article a week. 
I was speaking, but you know, that's not a, I was getting paid for that, but that's not a consistent form of income. So I did initially lack stability of housing. At one point I was just a couple of uh, weeks away from uh, going into a homeless shelter. It was very, uh, it was very lonely as well. You know, um, I had long since lost track of everybody. You know, um, I still, I was released at 32. I was feeling like I was 17. So I still, you know, I still wanted to throw a ball around or, you know, go to an amusement park or, you know, things like that. You know, and that's really not what, you know, I had no people to do that with. And that's really, for the most part, not what people were into that were, that were my, my age. So that part of it was difficult, uh, at, you know, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was difficult in terms of, you know, just not understanding like approach dynamics. And, you know, when you yeah. mentioned, well, you can get a wife, you can get a girlfriend. I mean, that was all, you know, uh, something, something different uh, for me. You know, how, how do you approach somebody? How do you express interest? I definitely don't want anybody to say that I made them feel uncomfortable. So, right. you know, that was always, uh, that was always in the back of my mind uh, as well. At the same time, that moment of uh, speaking at that press conference gave me some clarity that, you know, I could be part of the innocence movement without necessarily being a lawyer. And yeah. so uh, I did I did start doing advocacy work. I mentioned speaking, writing, but I was also doing regular media interviews and I was meeting with elected officials as well on various policy reforms aimed at preventing what happened to me from happening to other people. I got a scholarship for Mercy College. Uh, I did get the GED, the uh, associates and a year towards the bachelor's while I was in prison prior to funding being cut. So I got the scholarship for Mercy College to finish the bachelor's degree. And when I lost the temporary housing, that was how I avoided the homeless shelter and they, they let me live on uh, campus. Nice. Um, and uh, from there, I went, you know, went on to get a master's degree, and I was finally compensated after five long, hard years uh, that way. Uh, and uh, I did take a million and a half dollars to start the Jeffrey Deskwick Foundation for Justice, and we started getting people home. Yeah, uh, let's that talk way. about that. Let's talk about mm -hmm. that for a second. That was your, since your release, this, that was your dream to do somehow. Somehow you yes. were going to do it. Now you right. got some compensation, so you're like, okay. How do I do this? I mean, you've had enough smarts now. I, I you know, yes. you get them all this degrees and education. So you decided to do this. Obviously, it worked out mm -hmm. your foundation. And I, I'm thankful. I just want to say thank you for taking your time and your effort and your resources to do something for to help other people. Because that's what it's all about. Absolutely. Yeah. Fun. It, it definitely, definitely is. It's very meaningful. So we were able to, we 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 were able to, uh, you know, ultimately get eleven people home uh, that were wrongfully imprisoned, and we helped pass three laws aimed at wrongful conviction prevention. So DNA database expansion, videotaping interrogations, identification reform. Uh, became an advisory board member of the coalition group called "It Could Happen to You," and which the foundation is part of. And we passed another five laws. Uh, currently, we have. Uh, 10 active cases, and uh, we're doing policy work through the coalition group, which I'm, act, I'm active in both the New York, Pennsylvania, and Californian uh, chapter. And at some point, it became not enough for me to sit in the front row of the courtroom. You know, I uh, wanted to represent some of the clients myself, make, make some of the arguments, uh, hence going uh, into uh, law school and becoming an attorney in pursuit of another dream of exonerating others as an attorney. And I am 
now an attorney. That is amazing. Like, just that you had, there's, we hear a lot of sad stories. We hear a lot of horror stories of people who are released and, and they just don't know what to do or where to go. They don't have the support. Not only did you, you have a foundation where you help other people, but you decided, I don't want to sit in the front row. I want to actually be the one there helping to, you know, now you're a lawyer, right? You're a lawyer helping those people. So I'm just, this is one of those stories. It's one of those emotional your whole your story evokes every emotion possible in me like I was angry I was sad I was laughing I was I'm like I'm everything it's like a movie do you know your life you can probably make a movie out of this have you thought about I'm I have thought about that so uh I'm hoping that at some point I can find a literary agent and then they can we can get a book uh done by I have a book that's 95 percent done but you know I I do uh, there's a lot of exonerated books out there that really have never gone anywhere, and it's because they run to a small press, and I would rather sit and wait until I get the right offer from a major publishing company that can put the resources behind it, uh, the PR that's necessary, and you know, shelf space and book tour and all of that, and if you have success with the book, that's, that's the more usual traditional route is book to movie, so I am hoping to ha- have that. There is a documentary short out about me called Conviction, which is on Amazon Prime, uh, which is about my life post exoneration and my and and my uh, and my advocacy uh, work. I did not know that. So I obviously I didn't do my research very well because I did not know that. <laughs> well, I, I prefer to look at it. it like you missed something, but you. You've done a lot of research on a lot of other areas, so you weren't perfect. Okay, you're human. <laughs> Missed one thing, but you did a good job overall. But, uh, but the other thing that the you know the the certainly being a lawyer beyond uh, you know a few ca- I've entered I've, I've entered like three cases as co-counsel and but beyond that the additional credential certainly has uh, helped the policy work that uh, that that I've done, yeah. and I have also uh, I've been able to position. Uh, wrongful conviction prevention and broader justice reform, which I hope we'll get into before this part two is over with. Uh, I've been able to position that as, uh, you know, really about justice and accuracy and, you know, not anti-law enforcement per se, you know, um, you know, I view cops and, and prosecutors as, as, as definitely essential people, but, you know, we need to have better training and we definitely need to have accountability and extreme accountability if they run afoul. And so in, and so in positioning it that way, you know, I, I've been able to gain some acceptance in some unusual quarters. So for the last seven and a half years, I've co-taught the ethics class at a police academy in uh, New Jersey. Uh, I've served on the Big Skill Police Task Force Reform Group. We're on the policy subcommittee where I was assigned. You now I work with a sitting police chief in Peekskill and a county police officer and a retired detective. And we were able to get consensus on uh, certain policy reforms. And And I've been able to speak in front of groups of prosecutors and some district attorney offices. And I did serve on the transition team for a new district attorney in Westchester uh, for her um, conviction review unit. So I, that somebody that I, that as an individual that I did uh, help, help to uh, elect. And, and yeah, and I have been able to speak, I uh, spoke in front of um, five different groups of judges. They asked me to address different wrongful conviction topics. So 
my point is that that's all like part of my body of work in making successful outreach into uh, law enforcement. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. You're doing a lot of good for some, something so horrible and terrible that happened to you. You're doing a lot of good from it. And so thank God for that. But what I would like Jeffrey is for you to just tell us anything you want to tell us what you want to get into. I'm not, I'll leave this little section to you and I'll ask questions as you go. Like I want sure. to be able to get in what you want to get in. Great, great, great. Absolutely. All right. So uh, one of the things I'm proudest of about uh, Conviction, uh, which um, was uh, produced and directed by uh, Gia Wirtz, it was her first uh, documentary. And, you know, she actually switched careers to try to make a difference with the camera in, in, the, in the justice field. Uh, and and, and in Conviction has uh, uh, been selected by 12 different documentary film festivals. It's won three awards, um, best cinematography, best um, documentary uh, award of distinction. One of the things I'm most proud of about that is that I used the platform that I had there in order to bring some attention to uh, some of the non-innocence justice reforms that, you know, things in the system that I experienced was negatively impacted by and also witnessed up close and personal. So I mm -hmm. talked about things there like you know, over sentencing, like I saw prisoners there doing 20 and 30 years for drug possession, doing more time than people that had committed acts of violence or committed murder. And I saw people that were, seemed to me to be rehabilitated, had had bachelor's degrees and had completed therapeutic programs and and vocational trades and excellent, excellent disciplinary records. And they would go to the parole board and repeatedly get denied parole based only on the charge that they were originally convicted of, which is something that will never change. So uh, it was very, I saw how that was demoralizing. I saw how, uh, how in addition to that, I mean, it's just a complete abandonment of any idea of uh, belief in a second chance slash rehabilitation, uh, the medical care in prison being terrible and, and uh, elderly people in prison and how the medical care, which was already substandard, was particularly inept with regards to dealing with advanced geriatric needs. And uh, I, I saw in terms of compassionate release, we, we've talked about that in, in part one of our, of our series here, and that how often by the time the decision was made that somebody had, you know, wound up dying within a day or two afterwards or, or passed away before the decision comes down. And uh, and I talked about, you know, a lot of it didn't really, to me, didn't seem to be uh, much effort on the part of the prison administration to curtail the prisoner on prisoner violence or the verbal abuse that went on in solitary confinement and people once being paroled, sometimes being returned back to prison for a year or two for a technical parole violation. So imagine being returned back to prison for a year or two because you were supposed to be in at eight o'clock and you actually got there at 8.05 or 8.10, something minor like that. Yeah. And uh, solitary confinement and you know the removal of college education for prisoners, uh, keeping in mind that the national recidivism rate uh, is 68% in the US and how college educated prisoners um, much lower, dramatically lower uh, recidivism rate. So I spoke about all of those uh, issues you know, while, while on, on conviction. And uh, thankfully, Gia, you know, in a creative choice on, on her end of it, uh, left all of that in uh, conviction. So that's something that I'm really um, 
means a lot to me. Yeah. And so, well, sorry, I said I would let you lead it. <laughs> no, it's okay. If you, want, if you want to ask a follow-up to that, though, you certainly can or develop that a little bit more, and then I'll go on to the next topic. Okay, so what are you what are you going to be doing with this? What's your plan to do with this? With the documentary or on these issues? With the documentary first, like because sure. well, so, so let me just expand on that. So you got you've got the book, you maybe the movie, you got this documentary. There's so much that you could do with this, but would that mean you would have to leave your spot as a lawyer and go kind of this way and just, you know what I mean? Or it would not. No, I could do, I could do both. I mean, I've never intended to do more than just a couple of cases at once. So that would give me enough room to continue to go in all these different directions and continue to be the face of the organization, continue to do interviews and be involved in policy, meeting with the elected officials and strategizing, you know, and doing these other aspects of advocacy that we, we've covered. So I can do that while, while still, uh, yeah, yeah, handling a few cases uh, at, at a time. So Conviction, you know, it still has a, a bunch of other uh, documentary film festivals that were waiting for decisions to be made. Uh, there are plans for an expanded version of it that'll be an hour and a half that will feature other people, other parts of the story. It'll, you know, it'll have like my mother, it'll have uh, Maggie Taylor, it'll have Claudia, it'll have my lawyer, it'll, it'll fill out the rest. It'll, it'll put more of the legalistic and other aspects of it that it doesn't have uh, now as a, as a documentary short. So there are plans for that. And with respect to these broader justice reform issues, there are other organizations that are spearheading those issues. And I do, in, at strategic times and ways, I do parachute in and, and help them. I do use my, you know, voice and, you know, the press release and uh, speak and do media interviews or do presentations or meet with elected officials. And so I do do that. And from there, I go back to my innocence world and that work. And they continue on with the nuts and bolts until they reach back out to me. Uh, the next time. So as an example, I mean, I was very involved in the push for parole reform uh, this uh, last uh, last three or four months. I did a lot of speaking at various rallies and, you know, I was able to help help the organizations get more media coverage and uh, I did do media interviews and I did meet with some of the elected officials in regards to the issue. So well, you spearheaded a lot of this. And so no man's an island. You can't, you have to pass right. the baton on, right? So other sure, people of course. You can go on to the next and help the next and help the next. So you've spearheaded pretty much all of this and then put it into capable hands. And you just, you, you, you assist where it, when, and when you're right. able to, and when they reach out to you. Exactly right. Yeah, you get it. Yes, of course. That's awesome. And so what about, one question I do want to ask though, um, mm -hmm. And if I'm if I'm going off where you didn't want me to go, just let me know. But cons concerning right now where you are, what yeah. cases do you have in front of you right now? Is there anything you can speak on or? Yeah, sure. So I did I did enter uh, uh, the uh, Carolyn Warmus case. Um, so that was that guy like a that was really a big really big sensationalized case when she was originally convicted and they dubbed her the fatal attraction killer and. And so uh, I did enter that case as co-counsel and uh, as, uh, which was kind of an interesting thing because the foundation, that's a foundation case. We originally screened the case, connected her with an attorney who was doing all the legal work. And once I got admitted to the bar, he reached back, that attorney, uh, Dennis Kelly, uh, reached back out to me 
and said, look, I want you to enter this case as co-counsel uh, with me. And so we were able to, I was able to persuade the district attorney, the new DA that I helped elect to allow her to have testing. So they agreed to that on the on the eve of uh, when it was gonna be argued in court. So no question that I, you know, that was an influence there. So that's one of them. Uh, another case uh, is uh, the Andrew Krivak case. Uh, so the same polygraphist that coerced the false confession out of me did the same thing to Andrew Krivak. So I, you know, so I consult with that case and, you know, we did bring in uh, an, an attorney to work on it, but I, I'm not like officially one of his lawyers because there's a possibility that I could be called as a witness in that case because the polygraphist did the same thing, you know, to Andy who, who did to me, but I'm certainly really uh, in, involved in in, uh, in 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 that case. So that was so. Those are a couple of cases um, that I'm able to uh, verbalize share uh, with you. But you know, other cases will be coming up, and I'll share other stuff later. Of course, yes. So, Jeff, what Jeffrey? Do you like Jeff or Jeffrey? I'm going to call you Jeff. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> what advice do you have? This is. I don't even know if I can, I didn't write this down, but I um, I want to verbalize it properly because it could probably go into five sections, really. What advice do you have for people who find themselves in situations where they feel helpless, they feel hopeless, and, you know, they are innocent. They are, they're telling their, themselves, they're telling everybody else. It doesn't have to be prison, Jeffrey. It can be things in life where it's, you know, the world is putting us down. They're pulling us down. What do you have advice for those people? My formula for overcoming adversity is have a goal, be flexible. Uh, remember the, the, well, have a, well, have a goal, have a, have a realistic plan. You should be able to look at it three or four ways and see how it can work. And you have to keep trying new things, right? The definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing and think you're going to get a different outcome. Uh, be flexible. Remember that the, the goal is the goal. The plan's not the goal. So if an unexpected door opens for you, if it moves you towards that goal, keep going. Uh, another thing is uh, don't, don't give yourself any excuses. There might be a reason why something is harder for you to accomplish, but there's no reasons why, why you can't accomplish it. Uh, work really hard and never give up. And when you come to the point, like I did, a number of junctures uh, throughout my life um, where I felt like I was going to give up, you know, I just say to myself, you know, maybe this is, maybe, uh, this is the key moment. Maybe I'm on the verge of a breakthrough right here, but because I quit, it's not going to happen. So I'm going to keep going anyway, even though I can't, uh, and just to see what happens on the other end. And then once you reach there, you want to reach back and help people in a similar situation and do some work on the preventative side. And if you can do that, you know, it'll be healing, cathartic, meaningful. Your suffering will count for something. They'll make the world a little bit better. And I know that that is universal. So that could apply to somebody. I've seen it apply to somebody who's homeless. I've, you know, I've seen it apply to uh, somebody that was sexually trafficked. I, you know, I could see how that would apply to uh, survivors of domestic abuse or somebody who has a debilitating illness, another person who's faced uh, uh, discrimination or racism and any other challenge, any other life adversity that you want to uh, plug into there. I know that that can 
uh, apply to that. Yeah, that's great advice because there's a lot of scenarios like you just mentioned that people can find themselves in and many of us have found ourselves in them and to the extreme of Mm -hmm. spending 16 years in prison. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot. Yeah, sure. So that is great advice. And and is there anything we're missing here that you would like to get in? Yeah, yeah. The last thing would just be, you know, that uh, in terms of how people can reach me, there is the website, www.deskovic.org. I do have a public figure page on Facebook and I'm on uh, Instagram and LinkedIn. I want to, again, encourage people, if you've liked what you've heard over the course of these two episodes, definitely tune in to uh, Watch Conviction on Amazon Prime. Uh, drop a comment if you like it. That will help us in terms of the platform that we can get the bigger version uh, into. And my ultimate dream now, my next dream, I mean, immediately is trying to free some people and, you know, uh, uh, as an attorney. But beyond that, uh, I I do want to ultimately have like a chapter of the foundation in each state and ultimately in each country, because I really see wrongful conviction as a worldwide issue and places where we're not hearing about wrongful conviction or exoneration. It's not because that uh, their wrongful convictions aren't happening. It means because nobody is working on it. But those, but you know, that expansion will happen as public support uh, allows it, allows us to do it. So if you're out there, if you're listening, if you have a bigger uh, public presence or social media profile, I mean, please reach out to me. Imagine a short 30, 45 second video about wrongful conviction, about the foundation, encouraging people to contribute to our crowdfunding page on Patreon, for example. I mean, imagine, you know, 25,000 people, imagine 100,000 people, three to $5 on a recurring monthly basis. I mean, we see politicians of both parties raising tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars, largely from what they refer to as small dollar donations. So why not, why not about, uh, why not, why not uh, for, uh, justice reform. If the company you work for engages in corporate philanthropy, I mean, put put us on there, put us on their radio uh, rate radar. We're you know we're looking for midsize and large donors as well. If you're a celebrity, again, we need a celebrity spokesperson. So, uh, but the biggest thing I think, and if I was to sum up, is my biggest challenge in all of this is that. Uh, I, I need third parties who can serve as connectors to people in their network, you know, because, you know, so my own network uh, of people is somewhat limited because, well, I spent all the time incarcerated. I didn't come up in business 10, 20, 30, 40 years now. Uh, so I need third parties who can do that. But, you know, I hope, I hope that people will listen and, and that will, will act and will, uh, you know, if you're an attorney and you're out there, uh, you should do at least one pro bono case in your lifetime on a wrongful conviction case. That would also be another thing that, that helps out. And too many people don't vote. We need to vote politicians out of office that are opposed to justice reform. Uh, we need more people to serve on jury duty as opposed to trying to get out of it. So I think if we had jurors that were more scrutinizing of the prosecutor's case, then we could experience less wrongful convictions uh, uh, that way. Right. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and I was going to get to like how they can get to you and reach out to you. So that's amazing. And as you were talking about this, all these tags are coming through my head of what I, I'm going to tag mm-hmm. on this. Yes. Uh, like, there's a million of them. So I have, I hope I remember them all. You can send me some tags too, just to, re- so I can put everything on there. doesn't matter. Okay. okay. And, yes. you know, I am going to do my best as well. And when I, 
you know, maybe we can speak for just a second after this is turned off. Sure, of course. Um, for that. And yeah, I'm just really grateful that you shared your story. And I'm really grateful, Jeffrey, on how your story is continuing in such a positive way. You, you have it right. You have it right. You have to help other people now. Now, what are you going to do with it? You've gone right. through this. You've done all this. You're still doing this. What are you going to do with that? Well, hopefully you're going to help somebody else out in the process, right? Do a yes. pro bono, like you said, help somebody mm -hmm. out. You know, I love that because that's what it's all about. It's never about us alone. Right. Exactly. There's always those connections, those purposes. So thank you for sharing your story and your story's not done. It's just getting better and better and God bless you. And I, I just really hope that we can hear more about what you're doing in the world. Say your foundation. Yeah, the Jeffrey Duskovic Foundation for Justice. Justice. And we're going to have all of that on there, where they can reach out, where they can get you. So thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you for sitting with us. And I hope I did I hope I hope did you well. And Wonderful, Liz, you and I felt very um, comfortable with you the whole time. So. Thank you so much. And for my listeners, I am so appreciative of you. You tune in every week. Thank you. And I'm really asking you to pay attention to all of the things that I'm going to be putting up on this for this interview, the websites, where you can help with, with Jeffrey's foundation, how you can help Jeffrey and other people that he's helping, you know, for justice in different places in the world. We can't help everybody, but we can do little things here and there that make a huge difference. And Jeffrey is a prime example of that, of not giving up and just, you know, reaching out. So I just, I implore you to do what you can, to do what you can for the foundation, okay? And just as I always say, make sure you share, make sure you tweet, you like, you download, you subscribe, you send a pigeon, I don't know. Make sure you tell everyone that they should be listening to This Is Your City. Stay safe, stay blessed. Ciao. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.